You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. So we made it, and this is the last chapter of Job. <laughs> you have stuck it out. Um, so we're going to look at the conclusion tonight. We're going to see uh, Job speak one more time. We're going to see God speak one more time. Then we're going to see the uh, Job be restored. And so I'll, I'll read this chapter and we'll get started. It says, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I reject my words, and I'm sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. Then my servant Job will pray for you. I will surely accept his prayer and not deal with you as your folly deserves, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Then Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and doubled his previous possessions. All his brothers, sisters, and former acquaintances came to him and dined with him in his house. They sympathized with him and comforted him concerning all the adversity the Lord had brought on him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold earring. So the Lord blessed the last part of Job's life more than the first. He owned 14,000 sheep and goats, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named his first daughter Jemima, his second Kezia, and his third Karen Hapuk. No woman, no women as beautiful as Job's daughters could be found in all the land, and their father granted them an inheritance with their brothers. Job lived 140,000, or 140,000, that'd be a lot. He lived 140 years after this and saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. Then Job died old and full of days. So we've made it to the end of Job, and, and we've, we've listened to, we saw, the, we saw the setup, right? We saw uh, this, uh, I don't, this kind of eternal con or heavenly conflict with God and Satan. We saw the table been set. We saw the difficulties that Job has worked through. We've seen Job lament. We've seen Job question. We've seen these three friends provide their insight, provide what they consider to be comfort. And uh, we just heard God speak to Job. And now tonight we're going to hear Job, his final response. And, and again, God's dealing with his three friends and his final dealing uh, with Job. And so, I think the whole, the whole setup that we've been seeing is God trying to get across to Job the concept of, I can be trusted. I can be trusted. You don't need to question me. I'm in control. I can handle all of these things that you can't even grasp. You can't even grasp the concept that I'm handling. I'm dealing with them. Uh, so I can be trusted. I have a plan in all things that I do. And I alone can be trusted. You think you can trust yourself, but you can't. You think you can trust your friends, but you can't. I alone can be trusted. Don't question me. Trust me. And so after we've heard from God for these last four chapters, Job 
42 here opens with Job's final response to God. So the question is, has Job learned his lesson? Has Job learned his lesson? God came at him pretty strongly and put him in his place, and has he learned his lesson? And it appears that he has, because what we see at the beginning of this chapter is three confessions from Job that I think are there, obviously, to give us a historical record of what happened, but also to teach us because we'd be wise to share these three confessions that Job had. We should be living them out as well. And so we three, see these three confessions, and the first one is that God can do anything. That's the first confession that Job has. Um, he says specifically, I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. God spoke of all the things that he managed. He told Job of all of these things that I control, all of these things that I do. And, and if we truly understand the extensive list that he gave Job as he spoke to him, it was just scratching the surface. I mean, it's only a minuscule amount of all the things that God does. God's in control of all things. He alone can do those things, and he alone can do anything. That's the point, and that's what Job recognized. And so Job... I'm pretty certain that Job, he began to compare the things that he felt he had accomplished, right? Because his argument was, I don't deserve this. I'm a righteous man. Look at the things that I've done. So he compares all the things that he's accomplished with the things that God has accomplished. And all of a sudden, he feels microscopically small. I'm tiny. Because what I do doesn't compare with what God does. And I think the easiest, the simplest explanation, the easiest way to understand it is Job began to fully grasp who God really was. That's what he understood. And I'm confident, I mean, it tells us Job was a righteous man. I'm confident that Job had some understanding of who God was before this all happened. But what he did is he allowed the circumstances of his life to interfere with how he perceived and understood God. He allowed the circumstances to change the way that he thought. And so, in a sense, Job's reality became more important than God's reality. And that becomes a recipe for disaster. When my reality becomes more important or more prioritized than God's reality, that's a disaster. And Job also recognized that God's plan was indestructible. Job, Job may have felt as though he had a better idea or a better plan, but it's God's plan alone that would be fulfilled. That makes me think of myself as a teenager. Uh... Everybody, Dave was a good kid. No, Dave was a smart enough kid to recognize that mom and dad were going to win. And there were times, maybe my brother will listen to this, but there were times when I would watch my brother, as scripture would describe it, kick against the goads, and he would try to get his own way, and, he, and, he, and it didn't work out well. And it wasn't that there wasn't things that I wanted to do. It wasn't that I didn't disagree with my parents, but I was smart enough to recognize I'm not going to win. What's the point? I'm going to be out of this joint in four years. Like, I'm not fighting this battle right now because I'm going to lose. Right? And Job comes to the understanding that God's plan is the one that's ultimately going to be fulfilled. He's the one that's in control. God declared that to Job. Listen, I'm the one that's in control of all things. But more important than that, it's not just an authoritarian dictatorship. Job, trust me, I've got a purpose in all things. Yeah, I'm in control, but I've got a purpose for all things. Didn't I tell you about all these animals that I cared for? He talked about the deer. He talked about the goats. He talked about the smallest details of their life. I know about them. I care about them. I take care of them. I've got a purpose. Yeah, I'm in control, but I've got a purpose, and you can trust me. 
And that's the point. If we can come to that understanding and that realization that God is in control, that God does have a purpose, and that he is looking after our best interest, then we can get to that place where we can gain the ability to trust him. That's the whole point. God says, trust me. And in order to do that, I have to understand who God really is. Because if I don't, then I'm going to question. If I don't understand who God is, then I'm going to question. So what Job's first confession reveals to us is just this simple concept. A proper understanding of who God is is crucial to a healthy and productive faith. I've got to understand who God is. The second thing he says is, I, I spoke ignorantly. That's the second confession. I spoke ignorantly. And it has everything to do with Job comes to this understanding of who he is. So the first thing he did was he understands, he comes to an understanding of who God is. Now he comes to an understanding of who he is. He says, you asked God, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Now that statement right there proves what? Job was listening. (laughs) Job was listening when God spoke. Because these are exact words that God spoke to him. He said, who is it that's, that's concealing my counsel with ignorance? He said that in chapter 38, verse 2. That was the beginning of his response to Job. And Job says, yeah, I heard you say that. And my answer is, yeah, surely I did speak about things I didn't understand, things too wondrous for me to know. I spoke out of turn. That's what Job's saying. And again, I think what's going on here is quite remarkable because I want you to notice that in these three confessions, there's a progression. There's a progression to Job's confessions. Job came to a better or a more full understanding of who God is. And now that leads to a better or more full understanding of who he is. It's as if God made the comment that I've been trying to speak to you, Job, and yet you're filling up the air with nonsense. Like you're just wandering off, speaking nonsense. Ignorant, completely ignorant nonsense. And Job's reply is that, yeah, you're exactly right. I've been speaking foolishness. I've been speaking complete ignorant nonsense because I thought I knew and now I've come to realize that I know nothing. I know nothing. In comparison to you, I know nothing. And if we're honest with ourselves, how often can we say the same thing? We're no different. It's easy for us to feel like I've got it all figured out. You have days. I have days. Pretty smart. Look what I did today. I'm a pretty smart guy. But all that reveals is a lack of understanding on my part of how remarkable God is when I start to feel good about myself because regardless of how smart or wise you are regardless of how great your IQ is how great your affinity or ability to earn money respect or admiration from man that's only an extension of who God is because it all came from him every talent every ability every characteristic you have every trait that you have it's an extension of who God is It's a small, microscopical part of who God is that he placed in you. And that's what Job realized. In comparison to all the things that God is, I'm insignificant. Yeah, I spoke ignorantly. Because I I didn't really truly understand who you were, and that means I didn't understand who I was. So his second confession, it reveals to us that a proper understanding of who God is naturally produces a proper understanding of who we are. So if I don't walk out there, people don't know who they are. Why don't they know who they are? Because they don't know who God is. I can't understand who I am. I don't have a proper understanding of who I am if I don't know who God is. 
And so Job gets to his third confession, and he says, I've seen and heard God, and therefore I must repent. He says, I'd heard reports. This is a remarkable statement. He says, I've heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words, and I'm sorry for them. I'm dust and ashes. Again, notice the natural progression of these confessions. First, Job comes to an understanding of who God is. Second, Job comes to an understanding of who he is. And now Job recognizes what the natural consequence is of those revelations. Repentance. If I know who God is, and I know who I am, the only appropriate thing to do is repent and worship. That's it. Job knew of God. Again, you go back to the beginning of the book. He's a righteous man. There are no other men like Job. That's what it tells us. He was a righteous man. He knew of God. He had heard reports. But during this recent period of time, his troubles, and now his encounter with God, has provided a real experience for him. He, Job, that's what Job's trying to say. I've experienced God. I've felt him. I've been in his presence. It's different than, than hearing the story from the man across the street. I've experienced God. He says, my eyes have seen you. And again, we talked about it last week with Isaiah's encounter with God. When you see God for who he is, the only appropriate response is repentance. And that's exactly what we see from Job. Remember all the questions that Job had? That's what he does. He questions. Where's all the questions? They don't matter now. Because he's experiencing who God is. All those ideas that Job had, he felt like he was mistreated. All those are out the window. Why? Because Job knows of God's majesty and his frailty. I know who you are, and I know who I am. He says, I'm but dust and ashes. That means I can't crawl low enough on the ground to put myself in a position that's appropriate compared to you. I'm the lowest of the possible low. If I could dig a hole, I'd crawl in it. That's what Job's saying. And he rejects all that he previously said. So that third confession, it reveals to us that a proper understanding of who God is along with the proper understanding of who we are, necessarily produces humility and repentance. So if you can't get to a point of humility and repentance, then you don't know who God is and you don't know who you are. Period in the story. Because that's, a natural, that's what happens. It's not optional. That's what happens. So now God moves on and now he's going to deal with Job's friends. He shifts his attention to Job's three friends, but he does so in a very unique way, and I think it should capture our attention because it's unique. There's, it's different here. It says, After the Lord finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends, for you've not spoken truth about me as my servant Job has. He speaks directly to Eliphaz. It's interesting, it's different. But he, that in itself is not odd. But he declares to Eliphaz, hey, I'm mad, I'm mad with you, but I'm mad with these other two guys too. But he doesn't directly address them. He just addresses Eliphaz. It's interesting to me, why aren't, why aren't their two names mentioned? He doesn't even mention them by name. He says, you and your two friends. Why would God do that? It seems a little strange, but I think there's a lesson here. If you remember back through the book, Eliphaz was the first to speak during each of those rounds of speeches that those three men gave. Eliphaz was always first. Now, the thought was that Eliphaz was the oldest of those three men, and so he spoke first. That's why, because he was the eldest. 
It could be that simple, but I think there's more there. I think this also recognizes Eliphaz as the de facto leader of that group of men. He's the leader. And it's possible that as the leader, he influenced the way these other guys thought. Job 2.11 tells us, it says, When they heard of Job's situation, they met together to go and support Job. Right? So based on God's dealing with these men, I believe it's safe to assume that Eliphaz probably set that meeting up. I don't think that meeting was random. Hey, good to see you. Hey, how'd you get here? What a, what a coincidence. No, I think Eliphaz probably rounded up these two other guys and said, hey, this is what we're going to go do. They get to jawing on the way there, and Eliphaz probably is more dominant. He's the leader. He's influencing what they think. And if he's the leader, with the role of the leader comes responsibility, and that's what we see here. Were Bildad and Zophar responsible for their actions? Absolutely. But as the leader, it appears that Eliphaz bore some of the responsibility as well. If you look in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul writes that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman. In other words, every man is the leader of the home. Is the wife responsible for her actions? Absolutely. Is the child responsible for her actions? Absolutely. But the man bears more of that responsibility because it's his job to lead. In James 3.1, it says teachers are going to be judged more harshly. James essentially says, you're going to be a teacher? You think twice about that. Because you're going to be judged twice as hard as the guy that's not teaching. Why? Because you're responsible for what you teach. Because you're influencing what people hear. You bear more responsibility as a leader. And I think that's a similar thing we're seeing here with Eliphaz. He was the leader. And he's being dealt with accordingly. Was God ticked off at Bildad? Yes. Was God ticked off at Zophar? Yeah. But he's really ticked off at Eliphaz because you're the leader. You could have stopped this nonsense. And you didn't. Instead, you fan the flame. You're the one that's jawing those guys' ear when you're walking down the street. Yeah, I saw you. I saw you. And then I saw how you handled it when you got here. And why did those guys act the way they did? Because they listened to you. So I'm going to deal with you. It's interesting. It's also interesting, if you remember, there was a fourth guy, right? There was a fourth guy, Elihu. Why is he not mentioned here? He tells, God tells Eliphaz, you... Build that and so far, you've misrepresented me. You've not spoken truth about me. That's why he's angry with them. He's very clear. There's no guessing here. I'm ticked off at you, and this is why. But you may be thinking, wasn't there a fourth guy? There's no mention of him here. Why? Well, I think the logical conclusion is Elihu didn't misrepresent God. I don't think that we can definitively say that everything that Elihu said was completely spot on, but at the end of the day... He didn't, misrepresent, he didn't misrepresent God in order to get his own way. And remember, that's what these three men were trying to accomplish. They wanted to get Job to think how they wanted him to think. They were trying to manipulate him. They were trying to manipulate the way he thought. They weren't there to comfort Job. They were there to make themselves feel better. Because they knew, oh man, if Job really is a righteous dude, and this is happening to Job, then when's my turn? They didn't like that idea. So they wanted to feel better about it. So God didn't see the words of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar the same way that he saw the words of Elihu. And again, was Elihu exactly correct? I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know. But I don't think that he approached Job in the same manner that these three men did. His heart wasn't in the same place. And if you read all throughout Scripture, what's God concerned with? He's concerned with the heart. 
And I think this tells us that Elihu's heart was at least in the right place. So God's going to deal with these three men differently than he did with Elihu. So what did he do with them? Well, if you have a basic understanding of the story of Job, I think it's, it's easiest for us to recognize that these three guys, right, Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far, they're the so-called bad guys, quote-unquote bad guys of the story, right? They've misrepresented God, and he's not happy about it. But we can't stop there because it's easy for us to forget about how did God choose to deal with them. What did God do about it? How did he deal with these men? God told them specifically, Now take seven bull and seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer a burnt offering for yourself. Then my servant Job will pray for you. I will surely accept his prayer and not deal with you as your folly deserves. How many of you have ever been misrepresented? I can tell you as a coach, that's like daily. <laughs> like that's my life. I've been misrepresented on numerous occasions. It's not fun. It's not fun when people drag your name through the mud. It's not fun when you're misrepresented. And if you're honest with yourself, when you are misrepresented, you don't have a lot of positive thoughts about the one misrepresenting you. But that's the situation that God finds himself in, and yet he deals with it differently. God could have just snapped his fingers and rid the earth of these three men. It would have been that simple. But he didn't. Instead, what he did was put on his display his mercy and forgiveness. There was responsibility on the part of these three men. But if they would display obedience and sincerity, God was willing to forgive them for their folly. It's easy for us to look down on these three men. As we go through this book, you're listening to them speak over and over and over. It's easy for you to look down on them. But the reality is, we're in the same situation often that they are in this passage. Guilty of folly against the Lord. And yet God is faithful to offer mercy and forgiveness if we'll repent and be obedient to him. So don't forget those attributes of God. See, our, our natural human nature is snap your fingers, God, snap them. Get rid of them. That we want them to get theirs. But God's merciful and gracious. Is if, you'll, if you'll come to me, if you'll just come to me. We can't forget that attribute of God. Now, it's also interesting. We get one final glimpse. We've seen it all throughout the book. We've, seen, we've got one final glimpse of this role of a mediator. Because God tells these three men that Job will pray on their behalf. And he says, it's because of this prayer that I'm not going to deal with you as your folly deserves. Why would God do that? Why would God do that? I'm not sure that we can answer that question, but I do believe the following. What we see here is a parallel to the gospel. By praying on behalf of these three men, Job's serving in the highest priestly function possible. And that appears to be a foreshadowing or a type of what's to come in Christ. Job serving as a mediator just as Christ has done on our behalf. And what's insinuated in this passage is these three men on their own, these three men on their own, would not have been able to obtain forgiveness from God. And in a similar fashion, we can't obtain forgiveness by our own merit. There's nothing that I can do to obtain forgiveness from God. There's nothing that I can do to obtain salvation. Only Christ can attain that on my behalf, just as Job could only do for these three men. 
And also, if you look, in order to receive this forgiveness, so God's willing to demonstrate mercy and grace and, re- and forgive these men, but in order to receive it, these three men were required to be obedient. There was only one way to receive God's forgiveness, and that was to offer up the sacrifices that God required, and only then would Job pray on their behalf, and then God would offer his forgiveness. If you think about that, in a lot of the New Testament, in the book of John, Jesus says clearly, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. He is the way, not a way. He is the way. In order to obtain salvation, we have to be obedient to follow him. We can't do it another way. God is full of grace and mercy, but requirements are present. This is what the world doesn't like. God is full of grace and mercy, but requirements are present. What we see in this passage is a glimpse of the gospel. Because we cannot come to God or obtain his forgiveness on our own terms. So often that's what we want to try to do. We can't come to God or obtain his forgiveness on our own terms. We've got to agree to his terms. Again, why? Because he's the creator of God. <laughs> it's that simple. When we finish out the chapter in Job, we find that Job is restored. And it's... it's Again, it's interesting. The same thing that applied to to the three friends also applied to Job as well. Because before this restoration comes about, Job had to be obedient. So you think about these three guys, and they've got to be obedient because they've got to do what? They've got to offer the sacrifices. But Job has to be obedient. How? Well, he's got to pray for these three men. And that is like the ultimate demonstration of forgiveness. He harbored no ill will against them. They just treated him like a dog for like 30 chapters. (laughs) And he harbors no ill will against them, but instead he was able to forgive them and lift them up before God. That seems like such a difficult concept to grasp, especially in the very difficult situations of our life. It can be difficult to forgive, but we always have to remember that God set the standard for us to follow. He does it with Job and his three friends, and he also does it with Christ. I know who I am. And if you're honest with yourself, you know who you are. And even so, Christ was willing to lay his life down in order that our slate would be wiped clean. He harbors no ill will. Could he? Sure. Would he be validated in doing so? Absolutely. But he harbors no ill will, but he openly welcomes us in. He sets the standard of forgiveness. He asks nothing of us, that's Christ, he asks nothing of us that he's not willing to do himself. What's Job do here? Suffers. Did Christ suffer? Absolutely. What's Job asked to do here? Forgive. Did Christ forgive? Absolutely. Ephesians 4.32 sums it up. It says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Translation. Hey, you do it because he set the standard. And you're called to follow him. It's that simple. And we see that lived out in Job's life. The first thing that we see restored is relationships. All those individuals who had turned their back on Job, they now come back to Job. And it's interesting, you see, it says all his brothers, sisters, and former acquaintances came to him, dined with him in his house. They sympathized with him. Brothers, sisters, even family turned their back on Job. And now they come back and have returned. They sympathize with him and comfort him. They weren't with Job when Job needed him the most. But now they've returned. 
And I think it's fascinating that Job, apparently, Job doesn't hold a grudge against them either. But he welcomes these relationships back. And I think we have to entertain the idea, well, why, why would God do this? Why would God do this? Perhaps, just perhaps, God brought about the loss of these relationships so that in the midst of the fire, Job wouldn't rely on man, but he'd rely on God. Because he didn't have a friend to turn to. He didn't have a brother to turn to. His sister wasn't there. So all he had to rely on was God. I think there's another important nugget of truth here in, that we don't want to entertain, but it's here and we need to. In this little passage. It says that these individuals, they all return to Job to comfort him. Why? Concerning all the adversity the Lord had brought on him. Don't glance over that. If you walk down the street and you ask individuals, what do you know about Job? Well, this happened. Yeah. Well, who did that? I think a lot of people are going to say, Satan. <laughs> Satan did that. That's not the truth. All of Job's difficulty came from God. Because who's in control? God's in control. He's the one that orchestrated it. Now, that's a difficult concept to understand. It's one we don't want to understand. We don't want to come to grips with it. Why would God do such things? Again, the truth is we don't have the answer. We don't always have the answer to that question. But the main point of the book, right, we're at the end, right? The main point of the book, if you're taking it from me, is that we as followers of the one true God are called to trust him in all circumstances. That's the main point of the book. That's a key point of the conversation with Job that God has. He alone is in control, and it's he alone that we're to place our trust in. Yes, sometimes, God, God, not sometimes, God's in control of everything. He's in control of a good day. He's in control of a bad day. But if we understand what's going on here, the underlying current is, I've always got a purpose. I've always got a purpose. And if you know who I am, you can trust me. Next, we see that God restored Job's property and his possessions. And he didn't just restore them, he doubles them. Job had all these things. It talks about his sheep, his goats, his camels, his oxen, his donkeys. He had all these things prior to these events. But now, God doubles them. And I think it's important for us here... If I was going to hammer one thing home with this, I think it's important that we don't automatically link Job's repentance and his obedience with these blessings. Don't automatically make that connection because that's, that's Prosperity Gospel 101, right? If we make that connection, then now, what drives my behavior? Well, if I do this, then surely God will do this for me. That's not what it's all about. Does God want our obedience? Yes. Does God demand our repentance? You know, it's interesting. I used that statement right there in seminary one time, and they did not like that. But it's the truth. God demands our repentance. So does he want our obedience? Yes. Does he demand our repentance? Yes. But nowhere do we see that as a result of those, there's no guarantee that we're going to be blessed materially on this earth. That's not the point. That's not the point of what's going on with Job here. The point, I believe, is twofold. 
if we do those things, if I'm obedient and if I repent, then I'm going to be blessed beyond measure eternally. That's a guarantee. But second, God is gracious and desires to bless his people. That's the point here. God loves his people and wants to bless his people. Does that automatically mean that I'm going to be blessed just like Job was? No. God may bless me in a different manner. It's, I like math. I like anything that's logical. I hated English class because you read a passage. It's interesting that I hated English class. I'm not here preaching it. But it's, I hated English because you read a passage and you ask a question and ten people have different opinions. You give the same paper to a seminary professor, to five different seminary professors, you get five different grades. It's frustrating. Two plus two is four. You talk to ten people. It's four. It's always four. I like those things. But this isn't a math problem. And we want it to be that simple. If I do A, then God will do or bless me with B. It's not that simple. That's not how God works. We don't need to see it that way. But what we need to see is that we can be comforted and encouraged with the fact that God's gracious, He's merciful, and He desires to bless those that are faithful to Him. That's all you need to know. Don't overcomplicate it. He desires to bless His people. We see that, that God blesses him with children. He gets the restoration of his children. Now, how heartbreaking had it to be for Job, who lost seven sons and three daughters. He lost ten kids in the blink of an eye. Losing a child is difficult. It's a difficult loss that can't be understood by those that haven't experienced it. I've never lost a child. I don't know how terrible that is. I can only imagine. But I don't know. And Job experienced the loss of ten kids. And what we read here is that God provides Job with seven more sons and three more daughters. But there's, there's no doubt in my mind that these children, they could not replace the ones Job had lost. They couldn't do it. But they're still a blessing. They're still a blessing to Job's life. And I think there's two hidden things here for us to, to learn. The one, it's interesting that Job's daughters are mentioned by name as well as they are provided an inheritance. Now, that you may be like, what's the big deal? <laughs> well, that goes against the cultural norm. Women were considered insignificant, and but we read their names here. You don't often read a, women's names. You gotta, their names are listed. Also, the male heirs, so my sons, would receive my inheritance. My daughters would, receive, would be a beneficiary of the inheritance of whoever they married. They're not getting my money. They're getting their money. So marry well, daughters. I mean, that's the deal. But we read here that Job gave his daughters an inheritance. What's the, what's the message there? That God blessed Job exponentially. There was plenty to go around. He had plenty to pass down, even to his daughters. And that Job's name was so great that his daughters were important too. That's how good God is. I think it's a message right there of how good God is. He blessed Job so much that it broke the cultural norm. The second thing is, I believe that Job's inheritance of seven more sons and three more daughters is a reminder of eternal life with the Creator. Because if you remember, that's a question that Job had during his trial. Is there life after death? He waffled back and forth a couple times on that. In addition, Job was blessed with double of everything with the exception of his children. Why? 
Well, we can only speculate, but I believe that this points to the reality that Job didn't lose his original children completely. They're in the presence of God, and one day Job's going to be reunited with them. They didn't need to be replaced. They still exist in the presence of God. It's like an answer to the question that Job had several chapters ago. Is there life after death? Absolutely there's life after death. Follow me, and you'll experience it. Job's life appears to have been extended double as well. If you read, it says Job lived 140 years after this, which leads me to believe that he was probably 70 when this happened. So he experienced double portion of life after this trial. He got to experience his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren before he died. His life was blessed because God is good. Don't read it like his life was blessed because he did X, Y, and Z. His life was blessed because God is good. Job was a righteous man. So why do bad things happen to good people? That's the question that many people ask, and it's the question for some reason that many people connect with this book. But it's the wrong question. I told you that when we began, but I wanted to tell you that as we close. That's not the point of the book of Job. At no point is that question asked. At no point is that question answered. The point is... God's in complete control. He's in control of the good. He's in control of the bad. And we're never going to understand how much, we're never going to understand completely how God operates. But we have been provided, here's the good news, we have been provided with enough information to know that God acts with purpose, He's gracious, and He's merciful. We're not called to understand. We're called to trust. That's the point of the book. Trust me because I, I'm trustworthy. So God can be trusted with our lives. So just the last practical application for you as we close this, this whole book. The first is, do our actions reveal an appropriate and accurate knowledge of God? Do we truly know who God is? Because the way that we act, the way we carry ourselves, is going to reveal what we believe about God. Second was, the company you keep matters company you keep matters especially if you're leading people around <laughs> the company you keep matters again was uh, Bildad and Zophar responsible for what they did yeah but who were they influenced by Eliphaz you hanging around any Eliphazes <laughs> I mean that's a question to ask yourself the third is obedience and forgiveness matter Obedience and forgiveness matter. That's what God calls us to do. He calls us to be obedient to Him, and He calls us to forgive. Why? Because Christ was completely obedient, and because Christ completely forgave. The fourth is a big one that speaks to the whole book, and is all about your perception. But not all suffering is punishment. Not all suffering is punishment. God wasn't punishing Job. A lot of times God will use suffering in order to build you into what you need to be. How he's going to use you later. He's got, the, he's got the big picture. He's got the big map. We're looking through the tiny little window. And God sees, I know how I'm going to use you here. And I know what you need to be here. So I've got to shake you right here <laughs> so you can be what you need to be here. 
and, and we're too immature and ignorant while we're being shaken to think, what have I done? <laughs> Why do I deserve this? When instead, it's oftentimes just the complete opposite. I'm making you into what I need you to be because I'm going to use you. So in, the, in a crazy way, can we get to a point to where we're being shaken and we're grateful that we're being shaken? And then the last point was just trust. It's the point of the whole book. God's in complete control. And it comes down to, who do I trust more? Do I trust him or do I trust me? And it comes back to what we saw in Job's three confessions. If I truly understand who God is and I truly understand who I am, I choose to trust God. But when I place all my trust in myself, all I'm doing is revealing to the world I have no idea who God is. So, look in the mirror. You know, what do my actions say about me? Am I placing all my trust in myself, or am I placing my trust in Him? Because what that reveals is what I believe about Him, what I know about Him. And what did Job say? That should be the goal. This is the last thing I'll close you with. Our goal should be what Job said in 42.5. I've heard reports about you. I've been to church a lot. I've heard reports about you, but how many of us can say, my eyes have seen you. I know you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time in this book, this long journey that it's been. Lord, I pray that, uh, man, that this book would continue to speak to us, that, that, you've, that we have used this time in a manner that's worthy and acceptable to you. And uh, Lord, may we completely place our trust in you through the good times, through the bad times. And know that you always act with purpose and that you have a desire to bless your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.